Okay, so I'm going to put up on the screen, we're going to have up on the screen a, an image. It's the image of the world, and in your own mind, think about what's wrong with this picture. Everybody's got something in mind? So tell me, what, what's wrong with this picture? It's upside down. The world's upside down, right? At least, it's, it's like, okay, like, try to find Colorado. You almost have to, like, you know, turn yourself upside down and figure it out, right? The world upside down. Because we kind of view it this way, don't we? Kind of view, this is what the world's supposed to look like, and that's just upside down. So I had to start off um, this morning with this, this image because it's a, it's a takeoff on what's one of my favorite phrases, um, famous verses in Acts chapter 7, or in the book of Acts. It's found in Acts chapter 17, verse 6. And it's, what's interesting is stated by those who oppose the gospel. And it goes like this. These men who've turned the world upside down have now come here. And what's interesting about that phrase is that this happens in Scripture often. That is that someone who is opposed to the work of God says something very, very, very true except for just one small thing. See, that's a little bit inaccurate because what's really true is this. These men who have turned the world right side up have now come here. And what I mean by that is that now the impact that they've had in bringing the message of Jesus actually turns the world right side up the way it's supposed to be. Of course, that's an image. But it represents a perspective. Because if you think about it, this is what takes place. Well, there's a number of things take place when we come to Christ. One of those things is we are redeemed. Essentially, God has purchased us back. We were dead in sins, and so the blood of Christ purchases us back so that we can be his. We are reconciled. And so death, the, Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection and his righteousness is applied to us, so therefore we are in right relationship with God. And then there's another R word, and it is we are regenerated. And see, regenerated, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that for those of us who are in Christ, we're new creations. The old is gone and the new has come. Jesus said that this way in John chapter 3. He said, you must be born again. So that when we are regenerated, we go from people who are lost and found, who are blind and now see, and actually things have turned upside down. And we finally get it. We have a new perspective on life. We have a new understanding, a new comprehension. Because we see how things ought to be. We see ourselves in right relationship with who God is, how he's made this world, our dependence upon him, who we are and who others are. Now, granted, you know, it's almost like if you're squinting a little bit, it's sometimes we don't see things real clearly, but the reality is it's in the right place. And so the reality is that we're about turning our world right side up. So we have these things called our main idea when we, whoever is teaching on a particular Sunday. And this, this main idea is really taking a look at the passage, what is it saying, and then therefore, how should we apply it? In essence, what's kind of the take-home thing? And, and my main idea today is you can be someone God uses to turn the world right side up. As I put that together, I go, this sounds like a self-help book. 
You can be that kind of person, right? So I thought, here's the reality. And this comes from another one of my favorite verses. And I would say it's, it's probably the theme verse of the book of Acts. It's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And this is Jesus speaking to his followers before, the, before Pentecost. And he says this. But you will receive power from the Holy Spirit. And you will be witness, my witness, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, purpose to make us the kind of people who will turn our world right side up. So now you know where I'm going today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this incredible opportunity we have in the gospel to understand and comprehend. We can kind of go back to the maybe the day, the moment, the time, or maybe it was just one of those things where we begin to realize we actually are seeing the world right side up. We have come to place our faith in you and understand who you are, our need for you, and consequently the, the world's need for you. And we desire to yield our lives to your purposes for why you've made us and why you've made this world. As we continue to pray, I'm going to ask you, would you just simply pray this prayer, something like this, God, help me to hear what you want me to hear this morning. And after you've prayed that prayer for yourself, we just kind of pick somebody else in the room and pray that general same prayer for them as well. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks. If you got your Bible, please turn to Acts chapter 17. Let me kind of tell you where we are right now. In Acts chapter 17, last week we talked about in, in chapter 16, what has taken place in this city called Philippi. So I'm going to take full advantage of the fact that we got a map right here, and I got my handy-dandy pointer. And we kind of laughed at my inability to hold my, my hand in one place. It kind of just moves like that. So I apologize for that. Do my best. So let me kind of give you a little bit of where we are right now. So we started talking about in Acts chapter 13, there's this guy named Paul and Barnabas, and they're in what's present-day Syria in Antioch. And Antioch says, basically, as a church, we believe the Holy Spirit has now given us the mandate to make this gospel known in other parts of the world. We're going to send some of our best people. We're going to send Paul and Barnabas. And out they go. And they go over to the island of Crete, and they kind of go and go back up into here, into the southern area of what's present-day Turkey. And we have a couple of chapters, chapters 13, chapter 14. And if you remember, there's incredible persecution, but there's also fruit. People are coming to trust in Christ and be regenerated and come to newness in him. And so then you've got all these Gentiles. And so in chapter 15, which we did two weeks ago, we kind of talked about what's called the Jerusalem Council. It was like the churches as a whole said, we've got this slew of Gentiles coming out. What do we do with them? And it was affirmed once again that anybody who comes to Christ, anybody who is saved, it's, it's, it's saved by faith in Christ alone. And so there's rejoicing. They go back up to Antioch and they decided, Paul and Barnabas, hey, let's go out again. Let's go see how those churches are doing. If you remember, there was kind of a division in terms of what to do with John Mark. They decided to part ways, and Barnabas takes John Mark, and Paul takes Silas. 
This time they go up by land into an area that they had been before and visit some of these churches, including places where Paul was beaten, stoned, and left for dead. But then something interesting happens, and we see this in chapter 16. They get to this place over here, and they want to go north. They want to go into the northern part of Turkey. And the text says that the Holy Spirit prevents them from going. So they're kind of like, what do we do? And then in the early part of chapter 16, it says that Paul has a vision, and by this time, Timothy's joined him. And again, I'm sorry for my vibration there. Um, they say, Macedonia, there's a Macedonian call. And they go across, and for the first time that we know of, there's a concerted special effort to reach people now in Europe. And that's what's taking place right there. And so they come to this town of Thessalonica. Well, actually, they come to Philippi, all those events we talked about last week. And then they, we get to chapter 17. And here we go, chapter 17, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. Okay, I'm going to pause right there, because... And interesting things happen. We see there's a synagogue. There's Jewish people over here, right there in Thessalonica. And I thought, we need to have a little perspective. Kind of like, why is it a case where Paul goes into synagogues when all these Greek towns over and over and over again? So it last two weeks, as uh, I believe Jeff spoke two weeks ago and Matt spoke last week, or I can't remember which one. Um, both of them used in their main idea this idea of God being sovereign. The sovereign spread of the gospel through what God has done. So as you think about the word sovereign, let me just kind of help you with a little bit with this. You see, you and I make decisions all the time. And everyone in the world makes decisions all the time. And we do things. And sometimes we make good decisions. Sometimes we make bad decisions. But the, the doctrine behind sovereignty of God is that he still is able to accomplish all that he intends to do, sovereignly working through everything we do. So, watch this. Now I'm going to back up like 700 years. Okay? So, the descendants of Abraham, remember the whole Red Sea thing? Okay? They come out of Exodus. They establish a new nation in Canaan. There's judges and there's kings. We have like a king Saul and David and Solomon. And following Solomon, this kingdom, this Israel, is split into two kingdoms. You have Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. And what happens is there are 18 kings in the northern kingdom, none of them which really follow after the Lord for the most part. Zero. It's bad. Not good. In the southern kingdom, there's 20 kings, and about eight of them, generally speaking, are pursuing God. But this is what God does in his sovereignty. So you've got what's called the, here, you can impress your family and friends later on. There's a, there's a dispersion of the Jews into this area of the world. It's called the diaspora. Okay? And in doing so, what happens, this is like in 700 plus years before Jesus a couple hundred years later, something very similar happens in Judah. If you read the book of Daniel, it is this young man who's taken exile and lives the rest of his life in Babylonia. That's kind of what that's at. But watch this. So what happens is that the diaspora, the spreading, the dispersion of all these Jewish people in this whole area 
sets the stage for what God intends to do 700 plus years later. Because if you think about it, so you have monotheistic Jews who go into these towns and these cities and are established, and they're going, we're not going to join in with this, these Greek gods and these Roman gods and worship. We, we know who the one true God is. And so they establish these synagogues. And in doing so, there's the Greeks who are kind of looking at these really strange people who have these strange customs and live a certain way, and they're fascinated by it. So you have these synagogues, these small pockets of people who are worshiping the one true God, and you have surrounding them some of that, that outer circle, Greeks and Gentiles are going, yeah, we kind of think that's probably worth listening to. So that in the hundreds of years later, when the Holy Spirit sends people to begin to share and establish new churches, there's all these little outposts of synagogues. And so Paul walks in, as is his custom. You can imagine Paul walks in. Who are you? I'm Paul. I'm a Pharisee. Oh, really? I studied under Gamaliel. Whoa, we got us a great guest speaker today, right? Do you have a word from, uh, for us? And Paul goes, as a matter of fact, I do. And that's how it happens over and over and over again. But what is interesting, it's kind of like there's both the low-hanging fruit for what God's going to do and bring people to himself, but it's also incredible resistance. And we see that pattern over and over and over again. So let's get back to the text. Acts chapter 17, beginning verse 2 again. I'll come back to that point. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying... This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. See, those are the kind of the people on the outside kind of going, who are these Jewish people and what is this, this God they, they, they worship? But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. It's kind of a funny phrase. They formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have now come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they had heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So, verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were were so. Many of them therefore believed, and not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. When the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible, they departed. So let's talk about kind of where we're going today. 
This morning we're going to talk about what kind of people God uses to turn the world right side up. The first thing I think of is this aspect of that we, we are to communicate the necessity of Jesus' death and resurrection. That was a mouthful, wasn't it? Why not just say, share the gospel? Well, there's a couple things why. Number one is that communication is vitally important. It's absolutely necessary. When you think about it, it's, it's, you know, we're called to be a community of people to act out Christ's love, and, and that's important. We're supposed to be people who serve and sacrifice, and that's important. So the world kind of looks upon the church oftentimes that maybe we don't have the best of reputation because we don't always get along like we're supposed to. And that's important. How we act is vitally important. But here's the reality. No one comes to saving faith without the message being communicated to them. And so we've got to communicate it. We've got to share the good news of Jesus. But there's also a second reason why I kind of use that phrase to communicate the necessity of the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's because that's kind of what Luke says. Take a look again right at the beginning of Acts chapter 17. It says in verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. That's kind of a, a long way of saying something, but it's, it's really important because I think there's this, this really interesting word that Luke chooses as he quotes what Paul is doing. It's that word necessity. It was necessary. I think he uses the word necessary for three different reasons. The first one has to do with the comprehension of certain scriptures. So he's going to share a little bit about a right understanding of the scriptures and see the realities of the scriptures is what's true. It's authoritative, and so we need to pay attention. And that's the, that's by the basis by which we can bring the gospel because of what it says is true. But think about this for a moment. He comes into a Jewish synagogue who are familiar with the scriptures, and they have certain conclusions by what these scriptures say. They're essentially oppressed people for many, many years. And so you can think about how they might read the Old Testament, their scriptures. There's no New Testament this time. So they would see how God delivers through Moses and how he delivers through judges and prophets and kings. And they see these are types of the Messiah to come, the one, the chosen one, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And they begin to kind of have this image and this picture of looking forward to when there would no longer be oppression, but that, that God would establish his eternal kingdom with his king. Very easy for them to go, that's what we're looking for. That's our Messiah. As why, when you think about Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, palm branches, here comes our king, and then a few days later, well, wait, wait, wait. Why is he now betrayed, beaten, looking like that? That can't be our king. And so Paul comes in and says, let me, let me help you see that it was necessary for this Messiah, this chosen one, to not only be the conquering king, but first he had to be the suffering servant. He had to die. And he had to rise again. And he begins to walk through scriptures. 
and show them and, and debate and argue and discuss these things. Interestingly, when you think about the very first sermon ever given at Pentecost, Peter goes right to the scriptures and he quotes something. Let me turn to Acts chapter 2, if I can get to that. He quotes Psalm 16, and he says this, in verse 27 28, in his, his first address, he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. He says, if you rightly understand, it was necessary for the Christ to die and rise again. And he may have taken several scriptures that we might be familiar with. It might have started in Genesis chapter 3, where... The serpent would bruise his heel, even though the chosen one would bruise his head. And maybe he gets to chapter 22 of of Psalm, where he talks and quotes that. And maybe even Isaiah 53, and he begins to explain that here's the reality. The chosen one must die and rise again before he's the conquering king. What is interesting, when we read 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, we see over and over again that he must have spent a lot of time talking about when the conquering king would come again because they, they're talking about the end times over and over again. So he is explaining and proving and persuading them to understand it correctly. Now, that may have sounded like an academic exercise. Okay, so Jesus, that's consistent with his life. All right, okay. But there's really a second piece of the, it is necessary. I think the second piece is this. It is necessary because salvation is found in no one else but Jesus. It is necessary because none of us have any hope otherwise. That there is none righteous, no, not one. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So for Paul, it's like it was necessary because Jesus fulfills what the Old Testament is pointing to towards Messiah. But it's also necessary because we don't have any hope elsewhere. And for anybody else who's represented by that map, they have no other hope elsewhere but Jesus. Then I strongly think, and this is not necessarily here, But I think this is also what happens because we see Paul over and over again telling his story. He tells his story over and over again. In 1 Thessalonians, we see that actually he's he's in Thessalonica longer than three weeks, more than just those three Sabbaths that we see, to the extent where he probably starts his tent-making business at some point in time. He's also supported financially. The whole group are supported by people from Philippi who just started a church. And they're supporting him. But Paul has this way of telling his story as well. And how he became convinced. Him personally. And let's be honest. We're not going to go out and tell people about Jesus. Unless we're convinced. To risk that. The ridicule. The rejection. Unless we are firmly convinced. That it was necessary for me that Jesus would die and come back alive. When I get that, I go, yes, I needed that too. And so this is what happens. It says that he reasoned with them, verse 2, 
He explains in verse 3. He proves in verse 3. He proclaims in the verse 3. And finally, some of them were persuaded. It's a little bit different in Berea. We jump down to verse 11. There the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if they were so. That's really interesting because it's like, this is hard, difficult work. There's debate, there's reasoning, there's wrestling with, there's resistance. In Berea, they go, and they go, Paul goes, hey, let me explain to you. And they go, oh, yeah, I never saw that before. Let's get baptized. You know, it's like, boom. I don't know why. God didn't necessarily send me very many Bereans, okay? I seem to get the Thessalonians. The people that just, oh, this is going to be work. This is going to take a long time. My dad, 19 years of wrestling with this. If somebody in my life, it's already been plus 40 years that we're wrestling with this. But you see, God wants to use you and use your communication of the gospel to change people's lives. I think back about a number of years ago. Uh, we lived in Minnesota at the time. It was the same year that we went to plant a church and brought a team with us to, to Montrose, Colorado. And there was one morning, it was in January, and I remember that distinctly because of a couple of different reasons. And in my quiet time with the Lord, um, I felt like God was saying, you know, your relationship with your neighbor across the street, the couple's names were uh, Choke and Roxanne, it's time to take your Bible across there and talk with them and open up the, the Bible. We'd had some conversations, but so I go, okay. And so, you know, it's Minnesota, January, so I get on my, my Arctic parka and walk across the street. And they've got a long driveway, and they've got a picture window, and in the middle of the morning, so I kind of guessed what's already happened. They both had afternoon shifts, so I'm going... Most likely, they're walk, watching me walk up with my Bible right now because they're most likely sitting at the kitchen table drinking coffee and chain-smoking because that's what they did. So I walk in <laughs> okay, you know, and say, hey, could we talk about who Jesus is and what he's done for you? And we were at a point in the relationship where it was a relatively safe question to ask. So we sit down at the kitchen table, and within 20 minutes, they're in tears. They're in tears because of their sin. They're very aware of it. And convinced God could never love them. Because why would a holy God love them when there's that messed up? Let me tell you why and how. And I open the scriptures, I share with them some more. And they're so convinced we've got to Get our life in order. So the rest of that winter and, and the rest of the spring, this is like one conversation after another, after another, after another, after another. This is the year that the Passion of the Christ came out. So we invited to come, them to come with us and see that movie. And so they said, Let's, we need to drive separately because they've got to just continue to smoke and then stop, go to the theater, come back out and start up again. Okay, cool. So we go back out of the parking lot. They have tons of questions. We're talking, talking, talking. They're just wrestling with this, still not getting it. <clears throat> so we drive home and we go up our, our street. 
They turn left into their park or into their driveway and into their in their garage. We do the same thing. And literally, I'm just opening the door to walk in the house. And the phone's ringing. Chokes calling with more questions. June, we move to Colorado and say goodbye. Christmas Eve that year, I get a call. It's like 11 o'clock at night. It's Choke, and he is bawling. His wife, Roxanne, has left him, found some guy online. She divorced him. He's gone. We've already established this very, this pattern. Let me share with you, Choke, some things about God, his love for you, his, you know, just, just, nope. He just doesn't get it. Doesn't get it. A year later, Christmas Eve, I get this call, and of course don't recognize where it's from, because now he's living in upstate New York. It's late, so it's already Christmas for him. I'm going, is this sort of a pattern we're going to have for how many years are we going to do this? And so tells me, he goes, um, I'm remarried. Uh, we started going to church. I finally get the gospel. I trusted Christ. It is a clap, isn't it? It's, it's a clap. You know, you might be one of those people that just, you work at it, and you work at it, and you work at it. And you might just be one of the cogs, and you let it go and see who else is ready to pick it up. We never know. Some people, very quickly, and some people, takes takes a long, long time. But we need to be people who are communicating the word of God, communicating the message of Jesus. Which leads to the second aspect, the second characteristic, and it has to do with this. Not only must he be our savior, we communicate the death and resurrection of Christ, but also to live in submission to King Jesus. Look what it says in verse 6. It says, when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And this is fascinating. Listen to this. And, G- and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another King Jesus. Isn't that kind of a funny thing to say? They act differently, and they tell us why. Because they got a different king. They're, they act, they, they live differently, and we notice it. And they say it's because we want to honor our King Jesus. So that makes people mad sometimes. You know, you think about our lives and the, and the society we live in, and there's a, a standard that our society says what is right and what is wrong. And you notice it's rather fluid. It keeps changing. And then there's a standard by which God calls us to honor him and to trust him and, and this unchanging word of God. We, we trust in that. And there's times when these two kingdoms come in conflict and we stand out. And sometimes we just got to say, I can't do that because I'm, I want to honor my Lord Jesus. I, I just can't do that. Or I have a different perspective. And sometimes that makes people very upset. We stand out. But there's another side of that. He is my king and live in that way. And it has to do with what we've kind of made a theme in terms of this uh, a recurring statements that we make as we look in, at the book of Acts. 
is that when he is our savior and he's our king, and we're convinced of that, there comes a point in time where we say, I'll go anywhere. I'll tell anyone. And I'll endure anything. And that's the pattern we see here. It's pretty obvious. There's, they're going to Thessalonica. They go to Berea. They experience those things. But I want to show you something which is, to me is fascinating. If you go back to Acts chapter 16, verse 9 and 10, I'm going to show you what happens. Is, is I mentioned earlier that there's a point in time where the guys are up here and Timothy joins them. They want to go north, but the Holy Spirit says no. And they end up in a town called Troas. And Paul receives this, what's called a Macedonian call. is in a vision. And verse 10 reads this way. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately, we. That's the first we. That's the author of the book of Acts. It's Luke. Luke has joined in at Troas. And it says, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Luke is now on the scene. He's, he's right there and goes, let's go. He joins them. Acts sixteen forty, the very end of the, of the passage about Philippi. Verse 40 says, So they went out of prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, this brand new church, they encouraged them and departed. 17. Now when they had passed, they? What happened to we? Somewhere along the lines, in a, in a, in a city where there's been persecuted by for those who are bringing the gospel, Luke, who was a part of that group, said, I'll stay. He stays. He hangs out there. We jump to chapter 20. Five years later. Five years later. Paul ends up in Macedonia. That's that same area. Boom. Okay. Where Philippi is. And he goes through there. He spends three months. And he's getting ready to return through Macedonia. He sends a bunch of people on. Verse 5. Then these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi. He's been at Philippi for five years, most likely. I mean, we hardly know anything about Luke and his life. But you know, here is this guy who goes, I join in, and God calls me, I'll hang out here, no matter how dangerous it is. And he serves. And the Philippian church is an incredible church. I'm sure Luke had a lot to do with their, how solid they were and how they partnered with Paul and others in the, in the spread of the gospel and prayers and things like that. But you see, he's just like, okay, I'll go when God wants me to go. I'll stay when God wants me to stay. Here at Redemption, we talk about a 2020 vision. And that 2020 vision is that we believe God has called us to be a part of the church planning, continue to be about a church planning movement. And that we're asking God to identify where we are to be a part of planting next year and to participate in that. Already there's been a group of people that I've identified for Greeley. But this got started the same way four and a half, five years ago. There's a group of people who said, I'll go. So you might be a go, stay, go. Or you might be a go, stay, stay. You got it? Who knows? And maybe what happens? 
But the most important thing is, God, I'll go anywhere. And secondly, I'll tell anyone. When we read from Acts chapter 17, these two, this is remarkable because there's all kinds of people. All kinds of people. Responsive, non-responsive, argumentative. Hey, let's go see if this is true or not. People who are really not Jewish, but are God-fearers, and they study the scriptures, and they go, this is really true. And it happens over and over again like that. See, we really don't know who's going to come to Christ. We don't. And it's not. But they're willing to tell anybody and everybody who will listen. Let me just come back to one of the things that I thought about when we talked about the diaspora thing, that there were synagogues in God's sovereign plan. Here, this is, this is what's true and what we know to be true. If you have a conversation with somebody about Jesus, you didn't get there before God. You didn't arrive on the scene before him and God go, oops, I forgot to talk to them ahead of time. He's already been there. He's already been working on them. God's just asking you to be faithful. Will you be someone who shares and communicates the good news of Jesus? Lastly, is this aspect again is endure anything. We see this pattern over and over again. They go into the synagogues and there's persecution. It's like we know what we're going to get. We're going to walk into the synagogue and some people are going to go, this is, I've been waiting on my life for this news. They come to trust in Christ. And others are going, let's kill the guys. And that's what happens sometimes. But they're willing to go. They're willing to do. And so I'm actually going to add one last statement to this idea. People who turn their world right side up also make disciples who do the same. First Thessalonians, well, here, so after they leave Thessalonica, they go down to Athens, and they're there for a, a period of time. Then they go to Corinth, and Paul and the group are there for about a year and a half. And in that year and a half, Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. So it's probably maybe six months at the most since he's left them. I'm going to read to you the first chapter of Thessalonians. This is, this is really kind of incredible. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, that's Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, listen to this, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You've already seen how that plays out in their lives. This brand new church. God is sending, just again, if he's sending you, he's sending you with his power as well. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us. He uses that word imitator again in chapter 2. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. You were willing to endure anything for the sake of the gospel and with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. In other words, they just carried on the same work. That's Macedonia, the whole area up there, and Achaia is down here. So they are 
spreading the good news of Jesus, just like the one who brought the good news to them. But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us how the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Crazy. Incredible story, you know? That we might be used by a God in the same way to turn people's life, lives right side up. 